When I was uh, a kid, my parents wouldn't let me play with toy guns. I really wanted to, but they wouldn't. But what they would let me play with was toy swords. I don't know exactly why swords are better than guns, um, but I was allowed toy swords. That was pretty exciting for me. And sometimes I would ask my dad if he could make me a sword, and he'd be like, sure. And so he'd take me to the, the shed, and then in the shed he would get out these you know, big bits of plywood, and then he would you know, saw them up and turn them into these swords, which I would then hold and run around the yard, and I'd you know, slash at trees and stab into bushes and you know, fight imaginary bad guys. And I was a knight or a prince. I always wanted to be one of those two. And I would be protecting the realm from evil people. I loved my sword. It was really, really exciting. And my guess is, as we're working through the armor of God, you may have been waiting for the sword because that is by far the most exciting piece of armor. All the rest of the pieces of armor are defensive, which makes them boring. And here is the one which you can do stabbing and slashing with. And so this is what we get to. Finally, like, here we are at the good stuff. My nephew was telling me last night about how he is a pirate and he uses a sword to chop off the heads of evil pirates. So he, I think, would be excited by this sermon until he realizes he has to sit still for half an hour and then he would not be excited. But he would like the sword bits. And so uh, this is what we're thinking about. And when Paul talks about the sword of the Spirit, what exactly is he saying? What kind of sword is he talking about? Well, he's probably speaking about a Roman sword, the sword that the Roman soldiers would carry. And these were swords uh, which were um, two-edged and they would have a pointy end that would be uh, about this big. um, And they would be swords that you would use to fight your enemy. Um, They would hang in the belts. Remember, we talked at the beginning about the belt of truth. We now have the sword of the Spirit in the belt of truth. But the reason why it's a sword is because uh, the sword is what we use for combat, and it's used in personal combat. It's used in hand-to-hand combat. It's close combat. Because what Paul is saying is when you are up against Satan, he is right in your ear. He is if, as if he is beside you. You don't fight him from far away. Paul didn't write about the bow and arrow of the Spirit or the catapult of the Spirit or the anti-tank missile of the Spirit. He didn't write about that. He talked about the sword of the Spirit because it's right in there, hand-to-hand, close combat. And so what is the sword of the Spirit? Well, in some of these you know, things that we've been talking about in the armor of God, we had to do a little bit of guesswork and try and figure out from the rest of the Bible what these things are like. What is the righteousness in the breastplate of righteousness? And what is the faith about in the shield of faith? What is the sword of the Spirit? Well, Paul tells us the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So that's pretty easy. If you, you don't need to be a real Bible scholar to figure out what the sword of the Spirit is. It's the Word of God. But in the Bible, there are all these different words of God. So what is the Word of God that Paul is talking about. There is the Word of God that created the world. God spoke and the world existed. The the Word of God brings something out of nothing. So there is the Word of God. Or Jesus is spoken about as the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus who made his flesh, who was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. So there's Jesus who is the word of God. But then also we hear about scripture as being the word of God. So which is it that Paul is talking about? 
Well, the, the one that we can handle ourselves as believers, we cannot handle you know, God's spoken creative word that he chooses to say at any one time. Like we, that's God who gets to choose to, to create universes with his word or whatever he wants to do. What he does on his own will and volition, that's his word, so we don't get to handle that. That's his. It's all his, right? Then there's Jesus, and we also don't get to handle Jesus. Jesus is a person. He is not a sword. So we leave him there. So then we have the Word of God, and this is what is available to all of us. All of us as believers have been given God's written Word, uh, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And this is what we use to fight against Satan, to um, repel the attacks of Satan, and to stand against his schemes. It is this Word of God. And the power of the Word of God is not in the words themselves. It's not like these are some magical words that if you just say them like some ancient spell, wonderful things will happen or terrible things will happen. That's not how it works. It is the sword of the Spirit because the Word of God has power because it is the Holy Spirit who enlivens the Word, who brings it to life, who gives it power. It makes it work. The Holy Spirit um, brings the truth to bear on any particular situation. So when we use the Word of God in our fight against Satan, it is the Holy Spirit who executes the Word of God, say, this is God's truth, and you cannot go any further. He is like Gandalf going, you shall not pass, I think. I don't know, I haven't checked that one in the Bible commentaries or in the Greek, but I'm pretty sure it's something like that. So this is the Word of God. And so the question is then, well, how do you use it when you are in combat with Satan? And the great thing is that we have this Bible story where it tells us how this works. We see it being used by Satan, not Satan, by Jesus. Satan also uses the Word of God, which we're going to see very soon, but it's Jesus. And if I get it mixed up, can you let me know because I don't want to preach heresy for too long? So just let me know, like, Tom, yeah, okay. So let's look at uh, Luke chapter 4, and we're going to see how Jesus uses the Bible to fight against Satan when Satan is tempting him. So let's look at this um, from uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, "Um, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted, well, sorry, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry, which is probably the understatement of the entire Bible. Like, if you haven't eaten for 40 days, you are not just hungry. You could say Jesus was so hungry, he could eat an entire farm and call it entree, and then we'd be like, all right, now I understand how hungry Jesus was. He was really, really, really hungry. And this is right at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, He hasn't done a lot of public ministry. He's about to uh, go to the temple, uh, sorry, the, the synagogue in Nazareth and launch his ministry. So before he does this, the Holy Spirit decided, first you need to go out into the wilderness and face up to Satan. And I always had this picture that Jesus was there and he was fasting. And then at the end of the fast, Satan came along and tempted him. But it says here, he was tempted for 40 days, 40 days of temptation. Like if if I get tempted for like 30 minutes, I'm like, whoa, that's so much. I can give in now. I've, I've withstood 30 minutes, like 40 days. That is so long. But he withstands it all. He stands up against Satan's temptations. And so what are these temptations that Satan has for him? It says here, 
in verse 3, uh, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. So Satan's saying, you're hungry? See these stones? Turn them into bread. And I have, once again, in reading this, always wondered, why exactly would this be sinful? Like, what is exactly wrong with turning stones into bread? Like, if you've got the ability to do it, why shouldn't you do it? I mean, if Satan suggests it, you know it's a bad idea. But, like, if Satan didn't suggest it, could Jesus have done it? It's like, if I came along and said, Jesus, could you turn these stones into bread? You're hungry. Would he be like, yeah, okay, no worries. Like, why can't he do this? Well, Jesus tells us the reason. Uh, he quotes from the Bible, from Deuteronomy 8.3. And this is what the whole verse says. It says this, He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What Jesus is doing when he is going into the desert, when he's fasting, is he's showing that his entire person is reliant on God, that he is trusting God to provide for him, that he doesn't live by bread alone, but what sustains him is every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is God who sustains Jesus. And for Jesus to say, well, now instead of relying on God, I'm going to rely on myself. I'm going to use my special Jesus powers and turn these stones into bread. He's saying, I don't need you, God. I don't need my Father. I don't need the Word of God to sustain me. I just need myself. And so Satan is saying to him, look after yourself. You can do it. I mean, God would want to feed you anyway. If he loves you, he would give you this bread. Then just do it yourself. You can do it. And so Jesus is saying, no. I will not give in. I will not lose my identity in that way. Because his identity is to be one who is reliant on God. And so he's saying, I am entirely reliant on God. I, man doesn't live by bread alone. So Satan then tries another tact. Uh, Satan then moves on and says this in uh, verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will be all yours. And as someone who is a good Christian, when I hear Satan say, look, I have all authority, and I can give it to you, I think, no, you don't, Satan. God has all authority. God owns the whole world. He's got the whole world in his hands. I know. I sang that song when I was in Sunday school. Him and MasterCard, they've got the whole world in his hand, if you remember that old ad, otherwise I'm just showing my age. But he, God, God controls everything. Why could, how could Satan say this? But Satan, what Satan is saying is, to some degree, it is the truth. Satan does have authority over the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus calls Satan uh, the prince of this world. And in Ephesians 6, when it talks about the powers and authorities uh, and rulers of this dark world, it's talking about Satan and his minions. There's also uh, bits in the Bible where, where it indicates that the rulers, of, that, that God has set these spirits over the nations, which uh, are the lowercase g, gods of the nations, and they are under the rulership of Satan. That Satan has 
to some degree, stolen the authority from God and he's running things here on earth. And God is allowing it for the moment. And so when he says, I can give you the authority, he's saying, I have some authority and I can give it to you, Jesus. All you have to do, Jesus, is just bow down to me. You can just you know, give up worshiping God, who has led you into the desert, where you've been starving for 40 days, and you just bow down to me. And for Jesus, this probably seemed like a good idea. Like Jesus is someone who was in heaven. He was God in heaven. He, is, he had the authority. He, he had authority over everything. But he saw that equality with God was not something to be held on to, but he came down and became a man, and took on the nature of a servant. And Jesus knew that one day, he would reclaim that authority and that at his name every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord. And so what he would be taking was just what is rightfully his anyway. And Satan probably was you know, enticing him, saying, you know, think of all the good things you could do. You're a good guy, Satan. Not Jesus. Say, I did it. <laughs> You're a good guy, Jesus. You, know, you, could, you could rule the world so well. And Satan may not have exactly known the plan of God, but Jesus did. And Jesus knew that after leaving heaven and coming to earth and then taking his place at ruling the nations again, the way there was via the cross. And so the temptation to get there without having to go via the cross would have been huge. We know that Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. It wasn't something that he enjoyed doing. He said, take this cup from me. And so here was a chance to have the cup taken from him. That he could take up that authority and rule the world to take what is rightfully his. And all he would have to do would be just to bow down to Satan. Satan's authority may have been temporary and counterfeit, but it was something that he could offer to Jesus. And Jesus could hopefully escape the, the cross. But Jesus once again turns to Scripture and quotes to him from Deuteronomy uh, three, sorry, Deuteronomy six thirteen, and says, "It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only." Because Jesus knows that it's not just about taking what is rightfully His, but is also giving up His relationship to God. That He has chosen to submit Himself to His Father. And in choosing to submit himself to his father, if he chooses to worship Satan, then he chooses to submit himself to Satan instead. And Jesus will be giving up his entire identity. Jesus sees himself uh, only in relationship to the father. We see in John, he says, I and the father are one. That Jesus can no more turn his back on the father than he can turn his back on himself. And so he says, I am going to worship God and worship him only. And whatever you offer me is not enough because I have my father. I will worship him. And so then Satan tries another trick. It says this in uh, verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. 
So Satan knows that, you know, Jesus has been answering him with the Bible. And so Satan's like, oh, well, if it's the Bible he wants, then I'll give him the Bible. And he quotes to him from Psalm 91. And he's, he's like saying, look, you can throw yourself down off here and God will catch you. So why don't you do it? And once again, I'm like, what's the problem here? Like, oh, what exactly is going on? Like, how does it serve anyone, really, for Jesus to jump off and for him to be caught? Maybe he jumps off and then everyone sees it happen. And they're like, wow, what a guy jumping off the building. And he lands like Jesus, the stuntman. And then everyone would follow the stuntman around. What, is that what's happening here? It's, it's, I don't think that's what's happening here. What Satan is saying is saying, look, here is a promise that God has made that you can jump off here and he will catch you. So do it. And he's got to catch you. And what Satan is doing here is he's turning what is a promise of God to look after the faithful ones into a, a contractual obligation of God. That if Jesus jumps off, God has to catch him. God will be forced to catch him. That Jesus becomes the one in command, that he is just making God catch him. It's like when uh, I go into a toy store, I go to the toy aisle. Hold on, every aisle is a toy aisle in the toy store. If I like, go to like, Kmart and there is the toy aisle, then uh, there's often these you know, toys there like a, a fire engine or a, a Yoda doll or a Sesame Street you know, plush toy. And there'll be um, you know, buttons on them. And it'll be like, you know, makes real sounds or does realistic kung fu moves. And then there'll be like a sticker saying, try me. And then if there's that sticker there, I have to press the button. Like I have to press the button on the fire engine and hear it make a realistic noise. And I have to press the button on Big Bird and see him do realistic kung fu moves. Like I just have to do it because the sticker is there. It says, try me. And so I've got to do it. But God does not have a try me sticker on him. There is no button that you press and God answers your command that, that he says, I promise to this and you just press here and it will happen. And God is about relationship. And so if Jesus jumps off and just says, God, you must catch me, then Jesus becomes in charge. It's no longer a trust in God, but just a forcing God to act. And so Satan is doing it, saying, force God to act. Make him your servant. Put him to the test. See if he really is going to answer his promises. And Jesus knows what's going on. And so he says, once again, quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, he says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And Satan, seeing that he has been beaten for the time being, he leaves Jesus till a more opportune time. And that's how Jesus fights with the sword of the Spirit. And we see that as he does this, that he uses the sword of the Spirit uh, so that he can repel the attacks of Satan and he stands firm in the truth and promises of God. That's how Jesus uses the sword of the Spirit and how we need to use the sword of the Spirit. The question I have had is, why is it that Jesus does it this way? Like if Jesus is God, when Satan turns up, He'd be, he could be like, hey, Jesus. And Jesus would be like, get lost. And he'd be like, all right. And then he'd go. 
Because he's God. He can do what he wants. He can tell him to get lost. He's got that power. He's got that authority. You see, when the, the demons come up to, to Jesus, they are afraid of him. They say, what do you want with us, Jesus, son of God? They're terrified. So why doesn't Jesus just get rid of Satan straight away? Why doesn't he do that? Well, I think partly because when Jesus becomes a man, he gives up his, much of his uh, divine power and authority. Not that he stops being God, but he chooses not to access it. He chooses to live uh, as a human on earth under the limitations of humanity. Not always, but when it's for his own good, he lives as a human. And how are humans meant to fight against Satan? It's with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so he takes the Word of God and he uses it to fight against Satan. And so he uses it to repel Satan's attacks and to stand firm in God's truth and promises. So that's what we see Jesus doing. And the question is then, well, how, how do we put this into practice? How do, how do we be like Jesus? Well, probably the first thing you notice is that Jesus really, really knows his Bible. Like he can just pick these verses out and it's like, wow, that's impressive. He's got three verses memorized. I only have one and it's John 3.16. Jesus is fantastic. But it's not just three verses that he's got memorized. If you notice, they're all from the book of Deuteronomy and they're all from within um, three chapters of each other. There's two from six and one from eight. And what Jesus is doing there is he's not just, you know, picking the right verses from anywhere. He's picking them from a very particular spot where Israel has been in the desert for 40 years, where they have been tempted by Satan and they have been given in to those temptations and they will be tempted again and they will give in to those temptations again. And Moses is speaking to them saying, this is how you live for God. This is how you live in the new land. And they as God's representatives on earth, the ones who are meant to point people to God, to connect the world to God, they have failed. But now here Jesus is after 40 days in the desert and he is being tempted and he as the Messiah of Israel, as the one who will connect humanity to God, the one who will do the job of Israel and fulfill it properly, he is being tempted and he will not give in. He will, he will rightly and truly connect humanity to God. He is saying, you will not win this time, Satan. He knows his Bible. He knows it so well. He knows exactly what he's doing, exactly what verses he's picking. And it's not just the verses, it's the context. And within the context, he's talking about who he is and what he is doing. So what we need to do is we need to know the Bible. We need to know it. We need to know it so well that when we are tempted by Satan, we are able to, to respond with just the right verse or just the right truth because we know it so well. That we are able to, when we quote the Bible, we just don't pick things here and there, but we are able to quote them in context. When I was in year seven, the Gideons uh, came to my school. They're the ones that put Bibles in hotel rooms. Like when you open the drawer, it, there's nothing in there except the Bible, which comes sliding out and goes dunk against the edge of the drawer when you pull it out. You know that? Those Bibles, those guys came in. They, they're all old men named Gideon. And they handed out the, the Bibles to us. There were these little Bibles about this big. They were the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs. And uh, we all got them, and most people thought it was great, and they took their Bibles and spent the day throwing them around the classroom and the playground, so there was Bibles flying everywhere. It was like a revival. It was fantastic. 
But some of us then put our Bibles in our bags and forgot about them. And I was one of those kids. I put it in my bag. I forgot about it until like, you know, a few months later, I pulled it out and, you know, was filled with gravel and, you know, bits of sandwiches that I didn't eat. And then I was looking, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And I flicked through and then I saw at the back, there was this bit of a list of handy verses for things you could use in certain times, like a verse for when you're happy and a verse for when you're angry and a verse for when you're grieving and and a verse for when you're doubting and a verse for when you're hangry and a verse for when you're stuck in traffic and a verse for when you have dropped your iPhone and the screen has has, uh, broken but then you've taken it to Apple and they've fixed your screen. Like wow, there's all these verses for all these different occasions. I was like great. I should, I should have this and use it when I'm in any of these, you know, generic situations. And so I'll, I, sh- I'll, I should remember this, and then I promptly forgot about it. Because we need to know the Bible so well that we don't need to turn to these lists of verses so that we can, you know, pull it out. Because when Satan's tempting you, if he's, he's attacking you with, in some form, you can't be like, hold on, Satan. I just have to consult my list of verses to see if I've got the right one for what you're doing right now. Just chill out. Ah, there it is. Here we go. Cop this. Ah, like if you don't know your Bible, it is like a soldier going into battle and not knowing how to use their weapon. If the first time you were, as a soldier, you picked up your weapon was right in the middle of the battle, you would die before you picked up your weapon. So you've got to know how to use the Bible, your, your weapon, before you get there, before you get tempted, before Satan gives you the doubts, before you meet with the false teaching, before you, are, um, before, before you are persecuted, before any of these things that Satan will use to attack your faith, before they happen, you know your Bible. You are trained in your Bible. You have it ready to go. So that means then that you have to know your Bible uh, really well. You've got to know it at the macro level, which means like a big overview level, and you've got to know it at the micro level. You've got to know verses and verses. All right, that's maybe bits of verses. Um, you've, got to, you've, got to know, you've got to know it all. The, the macro level means that you've got to be able to see, I, I know, you know this verse and I know the, the chapter and I know the book and I know where the book fits in that section of the Bible. I know the New Testament, the Old Testament. I know the Bible. I know how it all fits together. I know the geography of the Bible. I know how one bit connects to another, which connects to another. I have this knowledge of the Bible. And when I was a kid, um, my dad would drive us home from places and I was always you know, so impressed by the way he could drive from any one spot to home that he wouldn't need a map. He could just do it. Wherever you were, he would get there. And so I, as I was growing up and learning to drive, I was like, I want to be like my dad. I want to know how to do that. I want to know how to get places. And so I spent, you know, over 30 years of my life living in Sydney trying to learn how to drive around Sydney. And that's particularly difficult because if you know what the roads in Sydney are like, they are stupid. It's like they got some horses and they put some line marking equipment on the back of the horses and they got them drunk and they said, go. And then wherever the lines were, that's where they put the roads. Like that's what Sydney is like. And so I spent so long trying to learn it but eventually after years of driving and having a job where I had to drive all over Sydney for like five years eventually I I got enough knowledge where pretty much if I could get to a main road I could get home and so I, I knew the geography of Sydney you could drop me anywhere I should hopefully be able to get there but it took a long time 
And then I moved to Melbourne, and I have to learn it all again. Luckily, Melbourne's a lot easier. You can get everywhere by turning left, then right, or right, then left, or if it's really complex, then right, then left, then right, unless you're going to the airport, and then you need to pack a lunch and get a local guide, and then one way or another, you may get there if you're lucky. Otherwise, you'll starve somewhere around Greensboro. But... (laughs) But you, 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 you want to you know the geography. Like, you learn as you grow up. You learn the place. You learn how to get around. And, and you might know, you know a little bit when you're younger. You know, like, where you live and the streets around there. And you might know where your grandparents live and the streets around there and where your friends live. But, but that won't really help you. Like, you, you might not know how to get from your grandparents to your house or your friend's place to your grandparents or anywhere to anywhere. You've got to know the whole geography, how one bit connects to another, connects to another, connects to another. You've got to know the geography. And that's true of the Bible. You can't just know bits and pieces here and there. You can't just know the, the famous stories. You're like, oh yeah, there's Jonah and the whale and, there's, and then, they, and then they, they march around the walls a bit and then, and then Jesus dies on the cross and then there's um, Adam and Eve somewhere in there. Like you can't just do that. You've got to know how each bit connects to each bit. So you can get dropped in any bit of the Bible and say, I know how to get from here to there. I know where we fit in the big story of things. I know what God is doing. I've got a big macro level picture of the Bible so that I can be able to use it when the time comes. So I can recognize when people have misused the truth. Because one of the things that we see Satan doing there is he misuses the truth that he quotes from Psalm 91 and he uses it against Jesus. And if Jesus didn't know his Bible, then Satan might have said, oh, look, this is what the Bible says. And Jesus, well, look, if that's what the Bible says, I might just jump off the building. I guess that's true. But Jesus knows his Bible. He knows that Psalm 91 is not a command that God must follow, but a promise of God to look after his people. And often, you know, people will use the Bible to teach things which are completely untrue, but sound true. Satan will use it that way. That he will... You know, people will say things like, oh, you know, these, these signs and wonders, these are the things that affirm that you are a true believer, that you are on the right path to God. Or this particular sin, this is the worst sin. And anyone who does this is an abomination. And anyone who doesn't can feel wonderful about themselves. That's not true. Or he might, he might say things like, uh, you know, this this bit of the Bible, it promises us that if you trust in God, you will be rich. So trust in Him, you will see His provision. And if you don't know the Bible, and people just say the Bible to you, like, oh, well, I guess that's true. So you've got to know the geography of the Bible. You've got to know the broad themes of the Bible. You've got to know how God works all the way through. You've got to have that knowledge. But then you've also got to know the your micro-knowledge. You've got to know particular verses. Like, for instance, if you know your verses, then when Satan tries something against you, you might, you'll have something ready to go straight away. Like if Satan goes, did God really say that you should not get drunk? And you might, if you don't know, you'll be like, oh, it sounds like something he'd say. And then Satan's like, well, I, re- I think that's just a law that Christians have made up. But if you drink and you drink like everyone else, then they'll see that Christians are fun-loving people. And that, you know, you, you, don't have to, 
You'll be a downer for them. They'll, they'll want to follow Jesus if they see how much fun you are. You're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's logical. Great. And then you get completely smashed. But if you know the Bible, Jesus, Satan says, Whew, did God really say you should not get drunk? You say, yes. He said, do not get drunk, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And Satan so will be like, you got me there, and then he'll have to leave. Because you know the Bible. You know the verses. So learn your Bible. Learn it. And memorize the Bible. Memorize bits and pieces. Like If you want to know what to memorize, then memorize the important bits which teach you the truth of Scripture. Learn John 3.16 and learn Romans 5.8 and learn Romans 8.28 and learn Procrastination 6.23. Learn them all. One of them was made up. Learn these ones and then you'll learn the truth of God. And then once you've learned these big verses, these ones which teach you about what God has done when he sent Jesus to die for you and what it means that, that you are set free in him and how God is calling everyone to repent. And when you've learned these ones, then know how it is that Satan will tempt you. Know how it is that Satan will work in your life and what he will try and trick you with and then learn verses to combat that. So if you're someone who often feels like you know, the guilt of your sin is always weighing down upon you, then you need to know Romans 8.1, which says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you get that guilt, you just whip that out and say, I know this is true. Or maybe you're someone who wants, you know, you put your trust in money too much. And you think, look, I, I, can, I can do it fine. I can worship God and I can have enough money and, and both of these will work together. Then you need to know that the Bible says you cannot worship both God and money. When Satan tempts you with that, you, just, you can pull that one out. That's uh, Matthew 6, 24, because I memorized it. Or maybe, if, maybe you're someone who you know, is dealing with, with issues of lust and then you need to know, you need to remember that, that Jesus said that anyone who looks and a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. So you can use that. So you say, I don't want to be an adulterer. The lust doesn't sound that good anymore. So you're ready when Satan attacks you. You know it. So learn the macro level of the Bible. Listen to sermons and, and do Bible studies and, and, and read commentaries. And most of all, read your Bible. Read it daily. Read it, listen to it. If you're not very good at reading, do it again and again and again because you are someone who trains with your weapon daily. And memorize your Bible so you've got things ready to go. And know those verses in context so you're not just someone who's pulling things out of the air. Like you you think, oh yeah, you know it because you know the macro level and the micro level. Learn it. Know the Bible. So that when you have the Bible, you have this knowledge, you are ready to fight. You are someone who has the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and you are able to repel the attacks of Satan and stand firm in the truth and promises of God. That is what we do when we use the sword of the Spirit. And finally, when you use it, just know where the power comes from because it doesn't come from you. Like if you're like me, and then you're, you, know, you love using the sword, and you're like, oh, yeah, look, I can stab me. And you think the power comes from you, that you can just pull out the verses, but the power of the Word of God is in the Holy Spirit that makes it powerful. It's not you, it's the Spirit who brings God's Word to life. 
And when you fight Satan, the, only, the fight you're fighting is just a small battle. But the only reason you can have confidence in that battle is because their great battle has already been won, that Jesus has defeated Satan at the cross, that you can stand firm and you can fight using all the armor of God, that you can repel the attacks of Satan because you know that Jesus has already won you for himself at the cross, that there is where true power lies. And you are just someone who is caught up in that and using those promises for yourself to glorify God and to stand firm for him and repel Satan. If you are not a Christian, then what all this means for you is that all these promises of the Bible, they can be true for you. That you can know what it means to be safe in God. You can know what it means to be able to to stand against temptation when it comes. That you probably want to be a better person than you are. And you can have that, but you can only have it if you trust in God. If you trust in the Holy Spirit who changes you. You can only have the power of the Word if you first have the power of the God whose Word it is. So trust in Jesus Christ who gave His life for you so that you may be forgiven and set free. And then trust in his word, which is promises for you that you can have a life with him. And if you are a Christian, then what you need to do is that the word of God is, is the only thing that you can use to, to fight against Satan. It's not your wits. It's not your logic. It's not your reason. It's not your good character. It's God's word that has the power to repel Satan. It's God's armor which has the power to keep you safe from his attacks. So put on the full armor of God and trust in God and his power so you can stand firm when Satan attacks. How about I pray for us? Father God, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you that in it we see the truth of who you are and what you've done. Thank you that knowing your word can be a powerful weapon for us, that we can repel the attacks of Satan I pray that we will, that we will see that it is not in our own power that we can fight, but it is in yours. That we will know our Bibles, we will know them from beginning to end. We will know all the bits in between, that we will never stop learning, never feel like we have mastered it, that we will memorize it, that we will be ready to use it when we are attacked. That we will not take it up in the middle of the battle, but we will be prepared beforehand so we might be able to fight and to win because we know that you have already won. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.